0: Thank you Kirsten um, one of the reasons that we have um, that I don't pray every week or that just our elders don't pray every week but that we have asked many of you guys to pray is just because the way I pray and the types of prayer I do is not the only way to pray is not the only example that we want you to have we want you to to hear the concerns and the priorities and the prayers and the language of various people in the church and and just understand the various ways that we can come to God. Um, we'll be, we're going to be in James 1 today if you want to turn there. Um, I was reading a biography of J.I. J, J. Packer uh, earlier this month and uh, it recounted how at a, um, an intro to a semester uh, kind of gathering that they had up at a Regent College in Vancouver, Uh, he began by saying that we are here to talk about the most important of all subjects God and that's a very you know kind of duh thing to say yes but it's also a good reminder Um, it's easy to get into just habits of of doing church of singing songs and not even thinking about what we're saying or singing or or hearing so I just want to Give you a reminder that we are here to talk about the most important of all subjects And that is God uh, Regardless of the specific topics and passages we, we cover each week Today we're going to be talking about prayer um, the, the main subject is always God Who he is His goodness, his glory, his worth and And that he deserves everything from us And that our greatest good is in him so that is always our our endeavor each week, and I hope that comes across today. Um, Kirsten's prayer was a great um, great intro, actually, not by any um, wise planning on our part, uh, but just great intro to today's uh, passage and, and topic. We're going to be on prayer. We're going to be talking about um, praying for things, making requests of God, like Kirsten just prayed for us to have faith and to live with love and and joy and all of these things, these fruits of the Spirit. What do we do when we find ourselves lacking? What do you do when you find yourself lacking in some of these, as we all do? You can go through the fruit of the Spirit. What do you find, what do you do when you find yourself lacking in self-control? Lacking in, in faithful love towards one another. Lacking in joy peace, contentment with what God has and hasn't given you in life, in purity and hope in God's promises, contentment in God's presence with you and purposes for you. Whether you're a Christian or not or aren't, sure, I'm sure you know that you are lacking in many of the things that God calls us to and says are good and says that he will equip us and empower us for through his spirit. So what do we do in these moments? Well, we can uh, become devastated by every lack and, and sin and failure that we find in ourselves and just constantly be devastated about it. We can buckle down and vow to overcome the lack by our own willpower or we can go the route of saying well we're saved by grace so does it really matter anyways does it really matter how we live whether we sin whether our character and behavior is in line with God's will well James today and as Kirsten modeled in in her prayer gives us an quite obvious answer but one that we are perhaps slow to do and that is to pray God I need you in this. I know you say that I should have self-control, but I need you. I know you should say that I should have joy and I'm not joyful. I need you. In the words of Philippians, we we should ask him to work in us both to will and to work for his good pleasure. That is to give us the desires, the will in the first place, because sometimes we don't even desire what's right, right? And then to work in us the, the will, the strength or the, the work to the strength to to grow in these areas, to be diligent and to make every effort towards these things for his good pleasure, because ultimately it glorifies him. So ultimately we're praying, God be glorified in me. Increasingly let increasingly let my life glorify you. And and surely God delights to hear these prayers of ours, right? like if our children come up to us and say teach me how to be more like you that's a that's an amazing humbling awesome request teach me how to teach me your wisdom teach me how to care for people like you well james is filled with very practical wisdom and today's passage is no exception to that. Um, the, the particular topic in the first part of today's section is wisdom, but the whole passage is really not about wisdom in exclusively, but just about prayer and specifically prayers of request. So to go through this, we're going to look at three factors for effective prayer. Three factors for effective prayer. So turn with me in your, your Bibles or your Bible apps to James 1. We're going to sh- be in verses 5 through 8, just four verses. Three factors for effective prayer. First, effective prayer depends on asking of God. Can't get more simple than that. Asking things of God. So look at the first part of verse 5, James 1 verse 5. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God. So first of all, notice what is assumed here. It is assumed that you might find yourself lacking in something that is good and glorifying to God, whether that be wisdom or strength or joy or peace or hope or love, self-control. When you become a Christian, you don't immediately find yourself having everything you need and perfected and you just coast through this life and never experiencing weakness or neediness or insufficiency and so what are we doing these times well we ask God coming face to face with our insufficiency and weakness is an opportunity to draw near to God it's a divine opportunity that God is drawing us to himself he wants us he invites us to come to him with our requests now if you think about it this we should pause and consider what this says about God's character Right? That he wants us to come to him and to ask him for things and he wants to respond to our asking by giving us good things. That There is a relationship at play here. Right, This isn't just about getting the things we want or think we need. God is not merely this like cosmic genie or slot machine where we can do our little dance or put in a little coin and we get out what we want and then we can move on with our life prayer is not just this formula for getting God to act for us. It's a relationship. He knows what we need before we ask. He, he can surely give us what we need at any time, but he desires to draw us into a relationship. Our creator God, the one ruling over the entire universe, the one ruling over all of history, our creator, sovereign, ruling God, desires to draw us into an intimate relationship with Himself. And and He has already gone to incredible lengths to make that happen. He has come into His creation, suffered and died in our place for our sins, humbled Himself to the point of death, to draw us to Himself and then rose from the dead because because he could not be kept down by death and to defeat sin, death, and hell. God has gone to incredible lengths to overcome everything that separated us from him and to draw us into a relationship with himself. And then one of the fundamental ways that we engage in this relationship is through prayer. We bring ourselves to him. We bring our thoughts and our emotions, our fears and our questions. We bring our thanks and questions worship and then we also bring our request to him if any of you lacks wisdom let him ask God he wants to hear our requests effective prayer depends on asking of God and yet that is of course not the only thing to say about prayer or effective prayer as if we could Ignore God with the bulk of our lives Never learn anything about what he's like And then just once in a while half-heartedly throw up a prayer for something And expect God to be pleased and, and to answer those prayers Secondly, effective prayer depends on true knowledge of God At least in part Of course we don't know God exhaustively But effective prayer does depend on some true knowledge of God So look at how verse 5 continues. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, and then we are told something about God. Who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. So some true knowledge of who God is is required is a key piece in our prayer. If we are going to make requests of anyone, whether that be our parents, our kids, our boss, a random stranger, it helps to know something of what they are like, what they love, what they desire, what they want to give to others. And that is, of course, true with God as well. And the first thing that James tells us about God is actually incredibly comforting and, and wonderful. He says he gives generously to all without reproach. Now, this, that phrase, without reproach, can seem a little, I don't know, seems a little confusing. Um, But it just means that he won't scoff at or be disappointed in our asking. He's not going to be like, oh, they're coming to me again. They're lacking in this this area. They keep asking me these questions, badgering me with these questions. No, that is not what God is going to be like. He will not scoff at our neediness, our lack, our insufficiency, but will in fact delight in the fact that we are asking him for what is good. In other words, we should not hesitate to ask. Right? If anything about our understanding of God discourages us from coming to him and making requests, we should consider that perhaps we don't understand God rightly. Because he gives generously to all without reproach. And he loves to respond to our asking. Uh, That verse 5 finishes, And it will be given him. Uh, now James is most likely drawing directly on Jesus's words here in in Matthew 7 the well-known passage you've probably heard where Jesus says ask and it will be given to you seek and you will find knock in the door and it will be opened for you for everyone who asks receives and the one who seeks finds and the one who knocks it will be opened Then Jesus gives a little example to 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 press this point home or which of you if his son asks him for bread will give him a stone or if he asks for a fish will give him a serpent if you then who are evil I like that just a little aside Jesus puts in there you who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children and you do even though you're evil how much more will your father who is in heaven who is not evil has no evil in him at all give good things to those who ask him. As you read through scripture, it it seems that God is continually trying to convince us of his goodness. It seems that God is continually giving us these pictures and reminding us and correcting our doubts and our fears and our uncertainties that he is truly good. you have doubts about God's goodness and I'm sure we all do perhaps we don't acknowledge them or haven't recognized them but likely we have some doubts at times about God's goodness perhaps often press into them test them you will not find God to fail you will not find him lacking you will not be disappointed in him which doesn't mean he'll be exactly what you want, exactly what you expect him to be. It rarely is. doesn't mean that you can just create a God in your own image and just kind of take your definitions and assume they're correct and just kind of force God into that. doesn't mean your definition of good doesn't need to be challenged. But it does mean that you will find him and his definitions to be better. You will find him to be good. And so, of course, God's generosity towards His children doesn't mean that He will give us everything we ask for, as Scripture makes clear. It's tempting to take statements like these and divorce them from the rest of Scripture, of what we know about God, and think that with enough faith and enough perhaps feeling, if we can just kind of work up a frenzy of feeling or religious activity, that we can get God to give us whatever we want as if he were completely in service to us and our wills with no higher will or purpose of his own. And so as part of our prayers, it's always important to remember and be learning and remembering what God is like. Among other things, God is perfectly committed to all that is truly good and righteous, and just, and true. We're told, Jesus says, if you ask anything in my name, and name relates to his character, his very being. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. Elsewhere, scripture speaks of asking according to his will. So the idea here is that another factor in our prayers is who God is, what he's like, what he wills and purposes. It's not enough to simply kind of work up faith and expectation and really believe something. We have to also know who God is and what he's like. It's faith in a living being. I mean, we understand this principle in life, right? Um, If my four-year-old, Eliza, were to come up to me and say, Dad, can I walk a mile down the street to the grocery store and get some ice cream? I would say, no, of course not. Not because I don't love her, but because I do, and I understand the dangers of the road, and um, better than she does. If our eight-year-old Ezra were to to say, if he were to discover that we had some savings, and say, "Dad, can you uh, can I go buy all the Legos that I want with with that money that you have saved?" I would say, "No." Not because I don't want to bless him and give him Legos, which I do at times, but because that's set aside for something different. We don't give our kids everything they ask for, and it is often an act of love and wisdom that we don't. We see this in Scripture as well. We've talked about Paul's thorn quite a bit recently, but... If you're not familiar with it, Paul has this thorn in his side. This, we're told, messenger of Satan tormenting him. He's being tormented by this thing, and he prays three times for God to remove it. Now, this was not necessarily a selfish prayer. Like, we should bring our thorns, our the things that trouble us, and bring us suffering of various kinds to God, and pray for relief. However, in this situation... And surely many that we experience as well, God had other plans. God said that this, this was for him to learn to depend on him. To find God's sufficiency and goodness in a deeper way. So yes, we should bring a request to God. We should be bold and be willing to take risks in asking God for things. We don't, don't just need to pray, God, your will be done. God, your will be done all the time we can bring our request to God at the same time we should remember that his ways and his thoughts are higher, better than ours he is going to give us what is good so effective prayer depends on true knowledge of God and then third Effective prayer depends on faithfulness through doubts. And that's kind of where the bulk of this passage goes in verses 6 through 8. So start at verse 6. Effective prayer depends on faithfulness through doubts. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Now, I don't know about you, but this this passage has always kind of troubled me. Like you read verse 5, and you're like, oh, it is so comforting. God is generous. I can come to him with my requests. And then you read verses 6 through 8, and like it seems to take all the wind out of the sails. Like I have to fix and be without all doubts before I can pray? Is that is that what this is saying? God will not respond to me unless I have perfect faith without doubts? Seems like an impossible benchmark. And it's not just James who says this. Jesus says essentially the same thing, which James is likely drawing on. In Matthew 21, Jesus says, I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only be able to do what has been done to this fig tree but even if you say to this mountain be taken up and thrown into the sea it will happen and this is a common metaphor for just doing things that seemed impossible so so what are they saying what does it mean to have faith and no doubt to not doubt well what I hope to show is that this has more to do with faithfulness a steadfast commitment to God than temporary struggles or streams of doubt in our minds. In other words, this is not just about doubts and questions that may creep into our minds and seem to call God into question, but about what we do in those moments. Are they opportunities for continued faithfulness, or are they always excuses for faithlessness? And I see three pieces of evidence for understanding both of these um, passages this way. Uh, let me walk through them briefly. The first is Jesus' consistent response to those who have doubts in his, in, in his ministry. How does Jesus respond to those who, he have, who have doubts? So look at a couple. In Mark 9, uh passage Brendan talked about last week, a man brings his demon-possessed son to Jesus and says to Jesus, if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. If you can do anything. Now, lest, lest the, the doubt expressed in that, in that exclaim, exclamation wasn't clear, Jesus responds, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. The man then responds famously, I, I believe. Help my unbelief. So we have someone here who apparently has an inkling of faith, but also admittedly has some doubts and uncertainty. And so what does Jesus do? Does he like say, I'm sorry, you still, your, your faith isn't perfect. You have some doubts. I, I won't respond graciously to you. No, he, he immediately heals the man, man's son. Another example, after Jesus rose from the dead, he appeared to his disciples and he said, why are you troubled? Why do you doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see. Rather than turning away from them because of their doubts, he moves towards them. He gives them evidence. He helps them believe. Again and again, Jesus moves towards those who doubt, and yet who are willing to press through that doubt, Willing to take a risk and stay faithful to Jesus. The biblical author Jude tells us to have mercy on those who doubt. Surely if we are meant to have mercy on those who doubt, then our Lord has mercy on us when we doubt as well. The second piece of evidence in taking this view is the range of meaning for the word doubt In James and and in Scripture. Uh, The word can mean waver, judge, or dispute. Waver, judge, or dispute. In other words, it is a double-mindedness, as James later goes on to say. It's not a single-mindedness, but a double-mindedness. Someone that's always going back and forth, wavering, constantly changing their mind and their focus and their their will and, and their love. One commentator defines it this way. This doubt, he says, is a basic division within the believer that brings about wavering and inconsistency of attitude toward God. So this is more than just uncertainty creeping into our minds and our thinking, but inconsistency in our wills, in our worship, and our devotion. I mean, as many of the Psalms reveal, you can have you can struggle with doubts and questions and still express faithfulness, S- still live faithfully towards God. And then the third and final piece of evidence for taking this view is the, the way that James goes on to describe this man in, in verses 5 through 8. He says he's like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind, a double-minded man, unstable in all of his ways. So this seems to be someone who is controlled by outside forces, or, or by his own emotions, or by every thought that creeps into his head, has little control over themselves, little consistency, little diligence. They are not singularly devoted, as a matter of the will, to God. Douglas Moo sums it up very well. He says, James is not then here claiming that prayers will never be answered where any degree of doubt exists for some degree of doubt, at least on at least some occasions, is probably inevitable in our present state of weakness. Rather, he wants us to understand that God responds to us only when our lives reflect a basic consistency of purpose and intent, a spiritual integrity. He goes on, he says, it is what we might call spiritual schizophrenia. I think that's a good way to describe what James is getting at. Spiritual schizophrenia that James criticizes in these verses explicitly and implicitly throughout his letter, a basic division in the soul that leads to thinking, speaking, and acting that contradicts one's claim to belong to God. And this makes sense because the presence of questions and and doubts about God and his will isn't something that we can always control right they seem to just creep into our heads but how we respond to those things is something that we do have some control over and responsibility for so it's not so much about whether we have doubts at all whether we face situations and experiences and emotions that seem to call God and his goodness into question because we do But it's about what we do in response. Do we continue to cling to God and his faithfulness and his goodness and trust him? Or do we put that on hold every time we feel it's called into question? Do we put God in the dock on hold every time we have a question that's not immediately answered? When... When pain comes, when suffering comes, when pain and suffering last and go on and increase. When we can't understand how God can be good in this situation or where God is or how he's working. When prayers seem to go nowhere, when Bible reading is hard, when church community is hard. when holding to biblical convictions is goes against everything in our culture. Do these things, do these questions and uncertainties have the final say on reality? Do we demand God answer all of our questions before we are willing to trust in him? And this isn't just about what's going on in our minds either. This is a, This relates to our hearts too. Like Jesus says, you cannot love God and money. Like, are we spiritual schizophrenics in our loves, in our worship, continually jumping from one thing to the next to find life and satisfaction? So I just encourage you to take a moment and consider your own life. Are there ways in which you are a spiritual schizophrenic, where your, your love... Is half hearted. You perhaps turn to God occasionally when things aren't working, when life isn't satisfying, but as soon as things settle down or seem to work out, you forget all about God. And so, as James says, you're like a wave of the sea, just constantly turning up and down, going this way and that with no stability. We don't really love God, we just attempt to use Him. And one of the things that we find here is that God won't be just used. Right, God doesn't play along with our games. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. I mean, this sounds harsh, but don't misunderstand what what James is saying here. We can come to God weak. We can come to God with faith as small as a mustard seed. You see examples of that throughout the Gospels. We can come to God with our doubts and questions, with our fears and uncertainties. We can come to him even angry and upset with our complaints. And he will receive us. But the one way we cannot come to him is faithless, is double-minded, is just merely trying to, to kind of game the system and get things from him with no intent to stick with him. So what do we do, if that is us, to to some degree? Well, the problem isn't just a lack of seriousness, the problem isn't just a lack of diligence or effort, and so, come on, get your act together, try harder, care more, no. The problem is fundamentally that we have not sufficiently beheld and believed in the goodness and worth and sufficiency of God in Jesus Christ. We must behold the glory and the goodness and the authority that God is the most important topic there is, but He is certainly not just a topic. He is the most important topic being and reality there is we must behold the glory and goodness of god in the face of jesus christ and give ourselves to him and trust ourselves to him god invites us to come to him and say simply god i'm yours uh, not because of anything i've done not because of my goodness and worth and sufficiency but because you have done everything you you we look at the cross and see that god has done everything necessary to overcome our sin and wickedness and rebellion in outward ways and inward ways God has done everything necessary and drawn him to him, us to himself at great cost to himself which is and that's risky right we're talking about a relationship here we're not just talking about figuring things out in our minds we're talking about giving our whole selves our emotions, our desires, our hopes, our happiness, entrusting that to God. It's a relationship, and relationships are always risky, as we all know. But God has gone to great lengths to convince us that this risk is worth it, that he is good, that he will not put to shame any who come to him and trust in him. Effective prayer depends on faithfulness through doubts. And I think if we were to tie this all together, the string that that runs throughout all of this is the relational nature of prayer. Right? We are to make requests of God because prayer is relational and all our wills and our desires, they matter. They have a place. We are to bring them to God. That's what a healthy relationship involves. At the same time, God also has a will and has desires and has certain characteristics, and and they matter. And we should get to know them, and as we do, learn to pray more in line with them. And as we get to know him, as we behold his goodness, glory, and worth, we are motivated and encouraged to continue on in faithfulness towards him. We are motivated and strengthened to trust him that it will be worth it. That he will never leave us or forsake us, that he will never let us down, that he will never put his blood-bought people to shame. That he will be good in all things in this life and in the next. So... Bring your request to God. As you see yourself lacking in various areas, know that if you are his through grace, it is through grace that you are saved, always and only. And then flesh out that relationship by coming to him in prayer, including prayers of requests. He loves loves that. Let's pray.